for any of those that might wonder or uh, not know quite the culture here of our church. Um, Sometimes I get up and I say things and I don't know why I'm saying them other than the Lord's leading me to say it. And so I am not thinking about anybody or any situation when I say this. Uh, But uh, if you ever are uncomfortable about something here at our church or you're not sure why we do something here at our church, we want you to come talk to us about it. And it doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman, if you are an adult or a teenager, if your child, go ask your mom and daddy, man. Uh, But if you're an adult or a teenager, a man or a woman, it is always appropriate, always appropriate to come and talk to us about any struggles that you're having Now, we don't want you hitting us with every little problem and being a complainer all the time, but if there's something that is a stumbling block for you and maybe keeping you from growing in your Christian walk, boy, my office door is open. Uh, You can come see me. You can come see our deacons and talk to us. If you don't know who our deacons are, they're situated throughout the auditorium. Brother Jim Owens is sitting over here. Brother Mike Surratt is uh, sitting in the back. And then Brother Jacob Okai is right here. And uh, some of the other men in our church have been deacons in the past or they've been members here for many, many years, and um, I would still consider some of them deacons, someone like a John Segru. Come and talk to us, and, and let us know what you're struggling with, and, and let's talk it through, and let's uh, help you with that. But don't let Satan take a little thing and turn it into a big thing, because he's really good at that. And I have sat in living rooms of people in the 10 years I've been in the ministry, uh, both where I've been the pastor and somewhere I've just been, Uh, an assistant pastor, and had people say, I'm leaving the church because of, and I said, well, did you ever tell anyone that was bugging you? Well, no. How long has it been bugging you? Well, it's been bugging me for years. Well, if you don't come to us, how can we fix it? How can we know? How can we explain it to you? So please understand that the culture here is always approachability, it's openness, it's honesty, and it's uh, there is no silly concern. No matter what your concern is, you come and talk to us, and we're, uh, we're ready to try to accommodate and understand and help. Uh, we're not uh, afraid of, of those things. So just want to say that. I don't know if anyone even needed that tonight, uh, but uh, please understand that's the case. First Timothy 6, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to look at verse 6 down through verse 12. And uh, if you can, I should have said this prior, uh, uh, turn over as well, it would be to the left in your Bibles there, turn over to Colossians 3. should just be a couple of books back to the left there, uh, two or three books back to the left. I believe it comes right before 1 Thessalonians, but find Colossians 3, 1. And we're going to look at both of those passages here. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 12, and Colossians 3, 1 and 2. This sermon here will conclude our mini-series on learning the love reproof. 1 Timothy 6, we'll begin there in verse 6, it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that which be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. And then a verse we looked at this morning, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou also art called. And has professed a good profession before many witnesses. Let's look at Colossians 3 and the first two verses. It says there, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Verse 2, Set your affection on things above not on things on the earth. The title of the message this evening is this, Where are your affections? Where are your, where's your affection? There you go, where's your affection? Let's pray. God, I ask tonight that you'd help us as we answer honestly and brutally this question within our own heart. 
And Lord, uh, many of the sermons in this series have been meant to chip away at the greatest stumbling blocks to spiritual growth in our lives. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we consider one that has so many Christians, so many churches, so many pastors, so many people uh, uh, tripping and struggling with. And, Lord, something that is a great limiter of, of great growth and spiritual success. So, Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves and, Lord, to begin to make the changes necessary in our mindsets toward money and toward things and toward comfort, Lord, that we would look at uh, uh, such and, uh, Lord, do this your way. We would leave the old habits behind. We would walk as children of light. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So I'm just going to ask you this question, and I want you to answer it in your mind. And I don't want you, I want you to almost forget about the setting that you're in. Let's just uh, pretend as though you're walking down uh, the mall corridor and you're taking a casual stroll. Uh, it's a Friday afternoon and you, um, you're not necessarily thinking about church. And a stranger dressed in regular clothes stops you and asks you this question. They have a pad of paper in their hand and a pen and they're going to take down your answer. Here is the question. The question is this. How do you define success? How do you define success? Now, it's hard to take ourselves out of the church setting, isn't it? Because we're sitting here in our church clothes with a Bible open in our lap and a pastor standing up in front of us. The answer in the Christian world is success is defined not by how much I have in the bank, but what I have laid up in eternal, in my eternal bank account, right? But that's not always the terms we think of. We don't always think in those terms. Um, many people define success as having strong relationships. Many define success as popularity or acceptance. Part of the way in, in 2018 that a pastor does his homework or research for a, a sermon is that he looks and gathers um, material uh, from uh, the common man on the street. I watched such an online video of a man asked how he defines success. His answer was literally, I define success by how popular I am on Instagram. I define success by how popular I am on Instagram. Now, he said that he hit an all-time low in his life, lost his job, and he needed uh, to, to really reflect in his heart and figure out who he was and where he wanted to go. I think that's a great thing to do if you lose your job. Um, I would say, add to that prayer, lots and lots and lots of prayer. But to the secular-minded man, I understand that prayer isn't on the radar he said that after he gave it much thought, he decided that he needed to open up an Instagram account and work to become the most famous Instagrammer in the world. He's holding a cell phone in the video, and on that cell phone is a special lens over his camera to take extra special pictures. Do you know what his answer really was? And it'll sound a lot less ludicrous or crazy when I word it this way. It's not really about becoming the most popular on Instagram. It really is just about acceptance from around the world. It's personal acceptance. Now, if we're honest tonight, many of us would define success by how well we're received in our social circles. Isn't that just about the same thing? Um, some define success as a promotion or pay raise at work. Some define success by, this is going back to our Instagram friend or our Facebook people, how many electronic thumbs up you get from a social media post. How many of you here are familiar with the term dope? Dope. In the, in the uh, 50s and 60s, dope was the word for street drugs, Right? Uh, you were known as doing dope. And uh, that word dope is short for dopamine, 
Dopamine is a chemical that's released in your brain. It's a selfish, happy drug, if you will. And it makes you feel happy when you are, when you are received well by others or uh, when uh, uh, you are getting praised and your ego is being stoked or you are getting, uh, becoming more popular and a lot of attention is being given your way. Now, in uh, the, uh, the era we live now, teenagers will say about something that's really cool. They'll say, that's dope. That's dope. Uh, it, and it doesn't carry the drug connotation today that it did decades ago. However, that dopamine is still around and many of us are still addicted to dopamine while we wear our church clothes and sit in church. You say, Pastor, how am I addicted to dopamine? Some of you, while I'm preaching this sermon, will look down at your phone screen to see how many likes your post got this afternoon on Facebook. Or how many uh, retweets your tweet got on Twitter. Or how popular uh, a social media post has become. And every time you receive an affirmation through a thumbs up or some sort of affirming comment, you are getting a hit of dopamine through your body. Now, there's nothing wrong with dopamine. God put it in us and it serves a purpose. But it, when it's out of balance, it serves us becoming egotistical, uh, uh, egotistical maniacs. It causes us to be proud. It causes us to be out of balance. And many people will define success by how many electronic thumbs up they get for a social media post. I have to say that part of me thinks that that's silly and crazy and flat out dumb. But I must say, as a 34-year-old man who used to be all over social media, I get it. I truly get it. But if there's one thing that can be universally agreed upon about success, it's this. If you have more money, it is easier to be successful. Now, you may not agree with that, but universally, that is believed. Um, can I just state the obvious this evening? Money makes people popular. Is that true? You got lots of money, you're popular. Uh, you remember the story of the prodigal son? While he had money, he had lots of friends. Did he not? When the money ran up, his superficial friends, friends went away. But while he had money, boy, he had lots of friends. Money not only makes one popular, money opens the door to a lot of work opportunities that you wouldn't get if you were poor and didn't have any money. Money not only opens the door for money, many work opportunities, money uh, brings about a security blanket to us. Money not only brings a security uh, blanket, uh, money helps affirm to us that we are accepted as successful by our peers in the world around us. It has been said that money can't buy happiness. And I would say this, if that's true, then give me all of yours and let me see what I can figure out. I'm teasing. Okay? Uh, but uh, can money buy happiness? How many say no? How many say yes? I vote yes. Money can buy short-term happiness. What money can't buy is joy. But money can buy happiness. You're going to tell me that if some rich philanthropist came to you tomorrow and said, let me take you down and buy you fill in the blank. All of us have something that we would like to have that we're not going to go buy on our own. For some, it's a car. For some, it's clothes. For some, it's, uh, it's um, you know, uh, uh, money that would buy, them, buy their way out of a difficult situation, right? But all of us have that item. And it would bring about a euphoria. It would bring about a happiness. It would, it would, uh, but, but that would be short-lived. Look, the truth is that if you are living in an apartment and you're struggling to get by, or you're living in a little tiny uh, uh, house and you're struggling to get by, and someone were to buy you a massive house and pay all your property taxes because you live in Connecticut for the rest of your life, um, uh, there would be, for most people, most people, there would be a short-term Whoa. Happiness. But do you know that if you were miserable inside before you got that house, within a year or two, you're going to go back to being miserable again. That, that, that happiness goes away. Money definitely does buy happiness. 
What is it about money? What is it about money? We wish we all had more. We are all impressed by people that have more. If we had it, we can readily think of things that we would do with it. Can we not? We would pay off debts. We would buy a new car or truck. We would buy a bigger home. We would invest in a new wardrobe or some sort of fashion accessory. Maybe we would buy a new electronic gadget. Maybe we would start a new business venture if we had more money. Uh, maybe we would buy gifts for people. Oh, oh, hold on. I forgot an important one. Uh, I almost forgot, but maybe we would also give some of it back to the Lord. Um, and unfortunately for a lot of people, that's the thought process. Jesus comes last. Let me give you a list of the ten richest people in the world as of February of this year. This list, I'm sure, is fluid and changes. Here they are. Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon. He is worth in excess of $100 billion. Bill Gates, um, uh, in ex- worth in excess of $91 billion. Warren Buffett, the real estate tycoon, $86 billion. If you don't think Facebook is successful and Facebook is everywhere, Mark Zuckerberg, who started it in his dorm room in a college, uh, he is now worth in excess of $74 billion. All on the backs of you uh, posting your photos and your videos and your cute little memories. Uh, here's uh, now some of these other people I don't know as well. Uh, Amancio Ortega lives in Spain. He's worth $71.3 billion dollars. Carlos Slim is worth $66.2 billion. Uh, Bernard Arnault is worth $64.7. Larry Ellison is worth $55.1 billion. And then the two men that started Google together, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, respectively, are worth $53.2 and $51.9 billion. That's a lot of money. Can I tell you something? I am impressed by those numbers. Not going to lie. I am Impressed. But here's the question I would ask you tonight. How do you define rich? We looked at success, but how about rich? Is it possible for one of these ten men to be poor? Even with all that money in the bank? Remember David? King David sitting on his throne. Probably the richest man in the world at that time, if not one of them. Would have made the top ten of his day for sure. He said this, he said, I am poor. I am poor. Money does not make you rich. Money does not make you rich. There's a phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. Um, And to that I would say, I've never seen a moving truck that is following behind a hearse. I think the the term as it's it's given is, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Is that how it goes? Never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Look, you can accrue all the toys you want, but when you die, you just lost. Because you don't get to take any of it with you. Now, I'm speaking to a group of Christians tonight. I'm not speaking to uh, CEOs of large tech firms or real estate companies. And to the Christians tonight, I would tell you that God has commanded us to be very different in our thinking about money. Most Christians, while they grow in faith, grow in their faith in other areas, they seem to struggle or to make the corner on this topic. Now, we leave Egypt behind when we get saved. But we seem to hold on to an Egyptian mentality or a lost sinner's mentality when it comes to our money. And we could point the finger and blame a lot of different sources for that. We can blame the devil. We can blame the culture or the music industry or Hollywood. We can say, oh, I can't help that I'm so money-minded or shallow in my thought toward money because my parents were that way or my peers are that way. And we can find many, many other corp- uh, uh, culprits. But can I tell you tonight, it really doesn't matter who you blame. Uh, the question is, are you going to set your affection on things above Or have them on the things of this world. To the members of White Oak Baptist Church, it is time that we quit chasing the distractions of Satan. And we get serious about pursuing the only thing that will truly matter when it's all said and done. You say, what is that, Pastor? What matters is not the temporal. What matters is the eternal. Now, I'm not going to give you any sub-points under any points this evening, 
We're going to look at seven thoughts, seven thoughts straight, no subpoints, And we're going to try to honestly and individually answer this question. Where are my affections? So I really, really want you to try your best to answer that question tonight. Are my, is my love, is my passion, is my affection on the things of this world? Or as Colossians 3 tells us, are my affection on things above in heaven? Notice point number one this evening, our cash, our cash. Look at first Timothy chapter number six with me in verse number 10. First Timothy six ten. for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrow sorrows. Now, um, I need to make sure that I make something abundantly clear in the beginning of the sermon, because uh, there are a lot of Christians that are confused on this topic. Very confused on this topic. And they think that money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Having money is not a sin. Giving money away is not a sin. Loving money is a sin. Loving money is the root of all evil. In fact, the Bible commands us... Please, please, please hear what I'm going to say right now. Because if you fall asleep during this part of the sermon, then the rest of the sermon you're going to be going, Yeah, but pastor, and so please listen to what I'm saying right now. Uh, Look back at uh, chapter 5, verse 8. The Bible commands us and encourages us to make money. It commands us and encourages us to make money. 1 Timothy 5, 8. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house... He hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. How are you supposed to provide for your own if you don't have any money? Sir, how are you supposed to put a roof over your family's head if you're not going to work and, and getting a paycheck? The Bible says that if you don't go get money to pay for your family's needs, you are just as bad as an unbeliever. It's just like you were never saved. It's as though you have no faith. And so we're commanded to go make money. Let me give you some others here. Second Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Someone here tell me what happens when we go to work every two weeks. You get paid. You get paid. You know what? You can't go to the grocery store and say, uh, because of my faith, I'm going to push this cart to the store and fill it up. And when I get the checkout, I'm going to hand in my faith and they're going to let me walk out. No, no, no. They're going to want cash, either welfare cash or your own cash. But they're going to want cash. And so if you don't go work to get the money, then the Bible says you shouldn't eat. So, again, the Bible is commanding us in 1 Timothy 5, 8, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10, that we are to be providers and that we are to work and earn money and use that money to provide. Uh, Proverbs chapter 6, Proverbs chapter 6, verse number 6. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, oversee or ruler, provideth, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth, gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou rise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of thy hands to sleep. So shall thy, in a bad sense, poverty come as one that travaileth, and thy want or lack of money as an armed man. Hey, the Bible's saying here, you better go work. Look at the ant and go work and get your money so that you can provide, so that you can have. Otherwise, you're going to have no money and you're going to be begging other people for it. And the Bible is pointing at poverty as being a bad thing or having no money as being a bad thing. So while we talk about getting cash I want to make it clear from the beginning of this sermon that having money and having a storage of money is not bad. In fact, it's biblical, it's commanded, it's practical, it's necessary. Having money is not a sin. Worshiping money is a sin. Number one, our cash. Number two, let's get into the meat of the message tonight and look at our comforts. Turn over to Matthew chapter 6, and I would say hold your place in First Timothy 6 
hold your place in Matthew 6 and put a piece of paper or a marker in Colossians 3 if you haven't already. Those are the three passages we'll be looking at and I'll be having you turn to, uh, flipping back and forth quite a bit tonight. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Now, let me just say before we read the verse, I'm going to read several verses that if you've been saved for very long, you have seen a lot. And I'm not going to reinterpret the verses, but I think I, tonight, I think I'm going to offer a perspective that you probably haven't heard much before. All right? So don't tune me out and say, yeah, 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 we know the verses. Don't do that. Because we're going to look at these tonight in a little bit different light. And I'm not going to change the scriptures or twist the scriptures, but I'm going to maybe take it into a deeper level that most preaching doesn't. Matthew 6:24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon means money there. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, which ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on, is not the life more than raiment, and the body, uh, is not the life more than meat, rather, in the body than raiment. So, we're told here, not that we, that it is impossible to serve both God and money. And I would say, loving money or serving money would be the same thing. If you love money, you're going to become a slave to money. If you are a slave to money, that's because you love money. And if that's the case, then you can't and you won't love God. If you love God, the money will be a tool. If you love money, then God is nothing more than a tool to get you by and get you where you want to go. So many Christians are loving money and using their life uh, to worship money. And God is nothing more than just a tool to provide for me during a tough time. When my own hard work and money won't get me there, then God can fill in the rest. And God says, no, it's to be me and you walking together and I will send you money as a tool to provide. Provide, but you're worshiping me, not the money. So what is it about money? What is it about cash that's so desirable? Do you love paper? Is it, is it paper that you love? It, it, what is it? Is it a two inch, and I'm estimating on the size here. Is it a two inch by four inch rectangular green piece of paper with a pen, picture of Benjamin Franklin that you love? Is that really what it is? That you love this rectangular uh, 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 picture, photo, drawing of Ben Franklin? And you, you have to have those, right? It, it's your worship. Is it the piece of paper? Is it, um, is it a eight and a half, an eight and a half by 11 inch sheet of white paper from your bank that has your bank savings or bank account numbers on it? Do you lay that piece of paper down when it comes in the mail and go, Oh, I love you, bank statement. Are you worshiping the paper? How about when your retirement fund company sends you that paper with all of your retirement savings in it? Or, you know, occasionally the Social Security Administration will send you, and I hate this, they send you something in the mail and it tells you how much you have set aside. And it's like, I won't see 75% of that. I'll probably die before I am able to collect it. But you see that and you go, whoa, look at all this money. Is it the digit on the paper? Is it the digit on the currency that you love? The answer is no. Nobody is worshiping a green piece or white piece of paper. What we struggle with is not worshiping our cash. What we struggle with is worshiping what our cash can do for us. Now, it's not really money that we love. It's what money provides that we love. Now, I want you to understand what I'm getting at here. It's not money that someone worships. It's what their money gets them that they worship. What does money buy us? Money buys comfort. Comfort. And in 2018, we expect to be comfortable, don't we? We view comfort as a need. Walked into church this morning and it was cold in the building. Because the heat had not ever been turned on for this, this season until today. I walked in the building and I said, it's a little bit chilly in here. And I thought to myself, 
I don't know if the people in the church are going to be able to listen with it being cold. Because we have to have it 70 degrees. Some of you ladies are going, Pastor, it's 60 degrees in here all the time, and I freeze even when it's summer. I see ladies in, in June or July come in and they got a sweater. Like, what are you bringing? And they're carrying them. What are you bringing that for? You keep that auditorium so cold. And I say, yeah, I, I guess. And they, they, they have to wear that. But we worship comfort, don't we? We worship comfort. And we, we, there are things that are needs, but we treat them, or rather they're wants, but we treat them like they're needs because we've come, become acclimated to that. Now, let me share something with you here. I got curious while putting the sermon together about uh, something I'd never, ever researched before. And it took a lot of digging and, and researching. And, and I got to tell you uh, that I don't know how accurate this number is, but I think it's a very good rough estimate. A lot of work has been done. In fact, the United Nations put together a, an economic council to try to answer this question. The question is, what is the average household income worldwide? Worldwide. How much does the average household bring in a year around the world. Now, you've got countries like, I think, Liechtenstein is the richest country in the world. And then you have countries like, you have countries like, like Nigeria, which are, are so impoverished. It's, you know, they, they, and by the way, Nigeria was not included in the study because they didn't make their statistics available. But a good chunk of countries did make their statistics available. And what they figured out was that the average household income worldwide is just under, once you put it through the exchange rates, $20,000 a year. $20,000 a year. Now, let me give you some thoughts about this number. Very interesting. People's income was exchanged over to U.S. dollars. So, for instance, some countries, Mexico uses the peso, um, I believe China uses the yen, and so if they made a certain amount that was put through an exchange rate and put in terms of U.S. dollars. The next thing they did is they figured out uh, what people's income was adjusted to the cost of living in their country. $20,000 in the U.S. will uh, not get you as far as $20,000 U.S. dollars would say in Mexico or Peru or Thailand. You can, get, you can go a lot further with $20,000 in a whole lot of other countries. So that was kept in mind. Okay, so that $20,000 a year number is, that number is what you could buy in the U.S. with $20,000. Translated back to that home country, think about how much you could get for $20,000 here in the U.S. That's how much you could get back in the home country. It was put up against that. The uh, I don't remember what uh, PPP stands for, but this $20,000 a year, it's U.S. dollars PPP, that means it's exchanged to U.S. dollars and it can buy the same amount as $20,000 would in the average location in the United States of America. Now, another thing about this number is that the unemployed worldwide were not included. So everyone unemployed does not contribute to this number. Otherwise, it would have been brought way down. And some of the poorest countries in the world were not included as well. So $20,000 a year, roughly, from working families... That's what they make a year. The average household income in the U.S. is somewhere around 65000 a year. 65000 So what are you complaining about? I am going to just throw this out there. I don't know a family unit at White Oak Baptist Church that makes less than 20000 a year. Not one. Not one. I think I made more than $20,000 a year when I was 18 working a freight uh, dock job, uh, uh, putting myself through college. I think I made somewhere a little over 30000 a year. Now, $20,000 a year may not seem like a lot, but if you're making double that, you're, you say, well, Pastor, but the average in America is 65 and I'm only making 40 And I would say, yeah, but you're making twice what they're making around the world. And you're making twice what they're making a living off of. Around the world. The problem, uh, friends, is that we are addicted to comfort. We have to be comfortable. And if we're not comfortable, then we say, well, but Pastor, I've got to work more because I've got to be comfortable. Now, let me just uh, share some more interesting things with you here this evening. Did you know that the refrigerator 
was invented in 1913. But pastor, I have to have a refrigerator. Well, how did they get by for 4,000 years before the refrigerator was invented? They found a way, didn't they? Microwaves, by my research, I might be wrong on this, and if I am, you can tell me later, don't tell me right now, but microwaves became household luxuries in the 1970s. Does that sound right? 1970s. But pastor, our microwave broke. I, I can't give to the Lord because I've got to replace our microwave. How did they do it before 1970? Um, they used an oven. And before the oven, they lit a fire and they cooked over the fire. The first in-home air conditioning system was installed to a very, very rich man. By the way, he lived in like Minnesota, <laughs> where you don't need air conditioning. But the first in-home air conditioning system was installed in 1914. But I have to have air conditioning in my car, Pastor. In fact, I had to go get this car and, 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 and fasten myself to a $300 a month payment because my air conditioner broke. And I have to have air conditioning in my car. Friends, we are so spoiled. You know what we are in America? We are that cat that's been living in that palace, eating the same expensive food and drinking milk at a specific temperature. And then we get picked up and we get put in the common man's home. And he pushes Meow Mix in front of us. And we're like, ew, I, I can't touch the Meow Mix. And I'm the owner of the cat saying, it's cat food, eat it! We are those spoiled, rotten people, and we are addicted to our comfort. Now, let me be clear. There's nothing wrong about having nice things. There's nothing wrong about uh, having the expensive version of nice things. But what is sinful is when we allow the accumulating of these things to detract from our love and affection for God. When we have to have it, and we have to have it on the level that God has to take a back seat, and a walk with God takes a back seat, and our time at church takes a back seat, and we have to work overtime because we have to provide the nicest Things And we have to have what money can give us, the power that money can give us. We tend to look at others around us and see the extras that they enjoy and convince ourselves that we are poor and because we don't live on the level of kings and queens that they are. We think, well, I don't have what they have. And so I, I got to I've got to work harder and I've got to push God to the side. And listen, I'm not trying to rewrite the Bible, but I believe what Jesus was getting at here in, in Matthew six twenty four is that you can't serve God in comfort. You can't serve God in comfort. I don't think he was saying you can't serve God in a piece of a rectangular piece of paper with uh, Ben Franklin's picture on it. I don't think he was trying to say you can't serve God in pa- uh, a, a picture of a piece of paper uh, that has a bank account status. I think he was trying to say is you can't serve God and the comfort that comes with it. Listen, if you have comfort, that's okay. But if you're worshiping comfort, that is sin. And I would say this evening, where are your affections? Are they on the Lord and are they on relying on Him to provide for you or are they on the comforts and the popularity that money provides? Number one, our cash. Number two, our comfort. Before I give you number three, let me say this. Being in love with comfort leads to a fork in the road when it comes to temptation. Sometimes, rarely, but sometimes you can find yourselves on both roads. But usually it's one or the other. Point three or four I'm going to give you cover the fork in the road that you have or that you come to if you worship comfort. Notice number three, our covetousness. Our covetousness. Look back at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Flip back over there with, uh, with me if you would. It says, therefore, the love of money is the root of all evil. Look at the rest of the verse which while some coveted after. They love money, they don't have it, they're coveting for it. They have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I don't think we all quite understand this the way God does. I don't think even I have my mind wrapped around this. 
But I'll make this statement. And again, with the knowledge that I don't completely even understand everything I'm saying here. But here's a statement. We live in a covetous society. Oh, it's so covetous. But is it really more things, prestige, or comfortability that we need? Turn back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 28. You, and listen, the covetous bug can bite anybody. It doesn't matter if you live in a home that's worth, worth uh, $100,000, $300,000, $500,000, a million dollars. It doesn't matter if you drive a beat-up car, uh, a clunker. It doesn't matter if you drive a, a, a luxury sedan or you drive some expensive uh, a car that's in the $100,000 plus range. The covetous bug can bite all of us because there's always somebody that has more than we do. Thousand heirs, look at hundred thousand heirs, and they want to be there. Hundred thousand heirs, look at the millionaires and want to be there. The millionaires, look at those that have hundreds of millions, they want to be there. The hundred guy with a hundred million looks at the guy with a billion dollars and wishes he was there. The guy with a billion dollars looks up at Jeff Bezos and says, I wish I had a hundred billion. Jeff Bezos says there's only nine billion between me and Bill Gates. Boy, I gotta step on the gas because I can't let him overtake me. And like John Rockefeller said on his deathbed, uh, enough money would be just one more dollar. They're never happy with enough. Their covetousness, or their covetous, and covetousness can, can really sink us. Matthew 6, verse 28 says, And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. You know what Solomon would have done if I would have read that list of top ten richest people to him in his day? He would have scoffed. He said, I carry a hundred billion dollars around in my pocket. That's pocket change. I spend that on, I sneeze and spend that much. Man, the man was worth so much more than a hundred billion dollars. And the Bible says that, hey, uh, you look at the lilies of the field and Solomon in all of his spending and all of his money and all of his effort, he even he could not look like a lily of the field, a simple lily of the field that didn't have everything or didn't have anything. And God said, when I beautify something, it looks way better than what money can buy. And we look at what other people have and we say, boy, I wish I had, I wish I had, I need to have, I need to have. And I'm here to tell you, no, you don't. No, you don't. Let's not forget that coveting makes the top ten of God's moral law. Thou shalt not covet. You don't need name brand clothes. You don't need to drive a luxury car. You don't need to have a nicer house. You don't need to have better things. You don't need to have more power or prestige that money comes with money. You don't need those things. And if you're coveting after those, then your heart is in the wrong place. This is what loving money leads to. It leads to covetousness. Philippians 4.19 But my God shall, shall supply all of your need, all your need according to His Riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Here's an interesting thought. Who owns all the money in the world? God does. Jeff Bezos doesn't have a hundred billion dollars. God has a hundred billion dollars and he lets it sit in Jeff Bezos' accounts. Right? I don't know how much money you do or don't have in the bank. But can I tell you this? It's not your money. It's God's money. He lets it sit in your account. What is really sad is that Christians lose perspective that the riches belong to God and they will do wrong to try to obtain more of God's currency to put in their bank accounts. And God is saying, why are you coveting after that which belongs to me? Why are you doing that? God does not like to share his glory with anyone. God does not want us to covet after something that does not belong to us or covet after something that only money can buy. Listen, it's so bad in the U.S. that we have Christian families and we have uh, uh, an epidemic of this where, and listen, this is probably true for many of you sitting here tonight. Again, I don't know anybody's personal finances other than my own. Well, we have families all over this church, I would imagine, if statistics hold true, you're thousands and thousands of dollars in credit card debt. You know what? You know what credit card debt is? It's being covetous. It's being covetous. Now, I'm, I'm speaking really plain right here, but you looked at an item that you didn't have money in the bank for 
and you said, let Visa pay for it. That's covetousness. I want that. I have not earned the money to have it, and so Visa can pay for it. You know what I want right now? I want a cup of coffee. Okay, I don't have the money in the bank, but I'm going to swipe my credit card, and I'm going to take the coffee. And instead of paying $1.50 for this coffee, or if it's Starbucks, $5 for this coffee, by the time all the interest is accrued, I'm going to spend $20 on this coffee. Now, that's covetousness. You, you need to learn to live within your means. And if you don't have it, you don't buy it. But that's what loving money does. It's the prestige. It's the acceptance of the crowd. It's the post on Instagram or Facebook that says, look at me, look what I have. Even though you didn't pay for it, Discover Card did. So our covetousness. Now, some of you here tonight, you don't live there. You're not covetous. But you love money, and it's taken you down a different path. That is equally sinful. Number five, notice our complacency. Our complacency. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 9. Verse 10 talks about the man who is in love with money but doesn't have any and has become covetous. Verse 9 talks about the man who's in love with money and has money. And we see a different struggle for him. Verse 9, but they that be, will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now, what this verse is not saying is that being rich is sinful. But what this verse is saying is that if you are rich, you have a whole nother set of temptations that are going to get hurled at you by Satan. That's why the Bible says it's easier for a a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You ever try to go soul winning in an affluent neighborhood? They they don't want your gospel. They don't want your Jesus. Because, you know, they got money. And so they, they've got all the things that come with money. So they don't need uh, they don't need that. But you know what? That 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 temptation can get Christians. You have money, you become complacent. Amos chapter six, verse one says this it says, Woe to them that are at ease. In Zion. Listen, and trust in the mountain of Samaria. That mountain represents a wealth which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. These, uh, these people were, were in a spot where they had fortified themselves. They had a mountain on this side that kept them safe. They had money in their hands. They had the comforts of life and they had grown at ease in Zion. They had grown to ease in Zion. And what can happen, Christian, is that God has blessed you. He's given you the ability to make money. And you have stowed money away in accounts. And you've got lots of money. And you, you don't need to worry about uh, your water heater going up or needing to put a new roof on. You've got the money for that. If you want to make an impulse buy, you can do that. And that doesn't hurt you. And if there's an offering at the church, well, you can give money to that. No big deal. And, and you're in a place where you can do just fine. But where Satan will attack you is he'll get you to be complacent. And the next thing you know, you don't care about others and their needs because you shrug your shoulders and say, I've got it figured out. And you'll see a guy standing on the side of the road with a sign that says homeless and hungry. And you'll say, go get a job. Where's that attitude coming from? It's coming from a heart of pride because you figured it out. You don't understand why they can't figure it out. Instead of Instead of being compassionate to them and showing them the love of Jesus, you give them the smug, prideful, arrogant complacency. And shame on us. Shame on us. Now, I am thankful that there are Christians, and I believe we have Christians in this church. Part of the blessing of not knowing who does the giving is that I don't even know who I'm saying this to. But I would assume there are people in this room right here. We'll read a missionary letter in church. And a need will be presented in that missionary letter. And regularly, we have people that will give thousands of dollars toward those needs. You know what that is? That's being rich and avoiding the temptation. I would say, praise the Lord. But if I'm speaking to you right now, and again, I have no idea who I'm talking to, and those people may not even be here tonight, but if I'm speaking to you tonight, let me say to you that Satan wants to ensnarl you in the temptation of complacency, and you better be on your toes. 
There are others of you here tonight. God has blessed you. He's given you the ability to make lots of money. and You've got lots and lots of money sitting on the side. I would say keep a tender heart toward spiritual things. Keep a tender heart toward the work of the Lord. Keep a tender heart toward giving to making sure the gospel moves forward. And don't ever grow complacent and cold toward the needs of people both in this area and around the world. Let's uh, look at the rest of the sermon. Point five will be a pivot point in the sermon. Notice our citizenship. Look back at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. 1 Timothy 6, 12 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Look at this next phrase. Lay hold on eternal life. Lay hold on eternal life. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3, if you still have that there marked in your Bible. Colossians 3, and look at verse number 1. And I begin reading, If ye then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection, your love, your hard work, your effort. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the kingdom of God. Uh, I just remind you, my friend, uh, be careful about accruing great amounts of money here on earth, because you're not a citizen of this earth. You say, well, well, Pastor Lejeune, I'm a U.S. citizen. Yes, you may be on paper a U.S. citizen, but primarily I'm a citizen of heaven before I'm a citizen of any country. And I'm more worried about the eternity I'm going to live up there and the amount of money I have set aside in the form of crowns that are going to be laid back at the feet of Jesus up there than I am about any bank account I have down here. Now, that doesn't mean you need to neglect your bank accounts down here and you need to be frivolous in your spending. But, my friend, let's not forget that what matters most is the kingdom of heaven. Because that's where our citizenship is. Two families went on a vacation together. And uh, they got adjacent hotel rooms, and one family thought very practical, and they pinched every penny, and they were careful. And the other family, they were loose, uh, and they spent their money on anything that they could, and, and, and loved to spend money, and, and, uh, and made a lot of it, and spent a lot of it. It just ran through their hands like water. This family, uh, they got into the hotel room, and boy... They were just admiring the room. They were pushed to stay in a nicer hotel because this family over here, they were going on a vacation with one of them to stay in a nice hotel room. And so they stayed in a much classier hotel room than they were used to. And they walked in and they were ooing and eyeing at all of the beautiful things that this upscale hotel they had never stayed in uh, had. This family walked in and they immediately thumbed their nose at the hotel room. And they said, this carpet looks like it's been here for more than a year. That painting on that wall, that's out of date. And who picked the color for this room? It is hideous. And I don't like the way this bathroom's laid out. So the next morning, as they were getting ready to go about their affairs and go about on their vacation, the family in that room uh, uh, said to the family in this room, yeah, we didn't care for our room, so we hired a contractor to come in. He's going to change the paint, he's replacing the carpet, and he's going, going to put new hangings on the wall, he's redoing the bathroom. And they said, What? We're going to be here a week, and you're never going to be in there again. Yeah, but, you know, we're going to be there, and these, these, these people are the best of the best, and they can have it done by the time we get back today. So we're going to spend several thousand dollars to get that fixed. And the people in this room are thinking, what are you doing? It's a hotel room. My friends, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, it's not going to matter. Where you took your retirement. It's not going to matter how much money you had in the bank. It's not going to matter how big and fancy your car was. It's not going to matter how many square footage your house had. Or how pretty your kitchen was. Or how expensive your stove was. Or, or how fast your car could go. Or what designer brand your clothes had. Why? Because we are simply passing through this world. And this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Now again, I'm not saying it's wrong to have nice things while we're here on earth. But what I am saying is that worshiping nice things and having gaudy things and going out of our way to live an expensive lifestyle is a loss of perspective on where we are citizens. Number six, notice our contentment. Our contentment. Look at verse Timothy chapter six and verse number six. The Bible says, but godliness 
with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. I know sometimes that my preaching can feel like I'm beating you over the head. But can I just talk to you really uh, plain here, really simple? Can I maybe take it down a notch? The Bible's pretty clear on this topic. We are not to be consumed with having nice things. We're to be consumed with serving Jesus Christ. Now, nice things will come and go. Sometimes someone loves on you and they give you something really nice. There's nothing wrong with getting it and enjoying it. Recently, and the church knows this, but recently someone took pity on my little green car and they bought me a car. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't expecting it. In fact, at first I said no to it. But after a lot of prayer and uh, talking to other pastors and getting counsel on it, the, church, the, the, the car was given to the church. And I do enjoy driving a nicer car around than the little green car that now Jason Magnarella owns. Okay? Um, sometimes someone's going to do something for you that's nice. Sometimes your finances will allow you to have something that's nice. But that's not where we ought to find our contentment. Our contentment ought to be found not in the things that we can have. It ought to be found in the things that we do have. Things that we do have. There have been times in my life where I've not been in a place where I've not had the things that I would have preferred to have. What I have felt God impress on me every time is when you learn to be content with what you have, I may provide for you something better. But if you're not going to be content, you can forget about it. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. You know what's more important than getting things? Getting God. Let that sink in for a minute. More important than getting things is getting God. It's not about the house, the cars, the clothes, the status, the popularity. It's not about those things. It's about this right here. It's about this right here. Because if I'm godly, and I love God, and I'm happy with a few simple things I have on this planet, and I can learn to live simple, boy, that's great gain. And I can be poor financially, but rich in heaven. Hebrews 13.5, let, let your conversation or your lifestyle be without covetousness. Stop loving money and be content with such things as you have. Matthew 6.24, look back there with me. Matthew 6.24 and 25. I'm going to show you a phrase that continues to pop up here on this topic of money that Jesus is uh, talking about to his disciples in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Look at verse 25. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on, is the life more than meat and the body than raiment. Look at verse 31. Therefore, take no thought, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Look at verse 34. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So to make sure we understand the balance here is that I'm serving God. I'm not serving money. I'm serving God. And I understand that God has all of the money in the world under his control. And as long as I'm loyal to God, God, I know God's going to be loyal to me. And the money I need to provide for my needs, not necessarily my wants, but my needs, he's going to put in my pocket as long as I'm loyal to him. And so I'm loyal to him and I'm working hard. I'm providing for my own. I'm going to work. I'm earning the check, but I'm relying on God. And my job is in line with being able to live the Christian life that he's laid out for me. So if God says not to work on Sundays on his day, I'm not going to work on Sundays. And I'm why? I'm not going to take a job that violates that because I need to be in line with God. And so I'm in line with God. Money is a tool. He provides it. And because of that, I don't need to take thought for tomorrow because he's looking out for my tomorrow. 
He already lives in my tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of the things of itself because God's going to provide for me. Our contentment. Tonight, are you content? Are you content? Some of you tonight can think back to a time recently where you have complained about something that you don't have. I'll tell you this, if you're not going to be content, then, then, then grow discontent toward your walk with God. But don't you grow discontent about the material things that you do or do not have. Lastly, number seven, notice our concern. Look back at Matthew 6, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. With that as the backdrop, look at 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11. And that's where we will draw out the point uh, that we're getting at here. We're not to be concerned with how much we can lay up here on earth. Okay, We're to be more concerned with how much treasure, what our bank account in heaven has. And show me where your treasure is on earth... And I'll show you where your heart is, okay? What are your concerns? Look at 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. And remember, verse 11 falls right behind the verses that talk about not loving money. And the love of money being the root of all evil. And the sin of complacency. The sin of covetousness. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 11. And we're given a contrast. Notice the very first word there is but. So instead of doing that, do this instead. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. And follow after, and there's a list here, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Now, I believe that God is giving these words in financial terms. So let's look at these in a financial way. Again, the the context of these words are on the background of money. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is a life that is devoted to living right for God. You say, well, pastor, but righteousness and godliness, aren't they the same thing? Stay with me now. I know I'm losing some of you. Stay with me now. I'm going to make this point and I'm going to shut it down. So stay with me to the end here. Let's finish the sermon strong. Righteousness is a life that is devoted to living right for God. What is the difference between righteousness and godliness? Well, righteousness is a life that's devoted and godliness is a heart that's devoted. Do you know that you can have a life that's devoted and forget to have a heart that's devoted? See the church of Ephesus, of Ephesians in Revelation 2. Their life was devoted, but their heart was not devoted. So righteousness is a life that's doing right. Godliness is a heart that's interacting right. So uh, now let's look at the rest of these. Faith. Faith. Again, 1 Timothy 6.11 Faith. Faith is the understanding that my salvation uh, I received was through faith and then that relying on God to meet my daily needs. My faith is in God. He saved me through the riches of His grace. He's going to provide for my daily needs through the riches of His money. He's going to give me to pay my way. I have faith in God that He's going to provide. And I'm standing here 11 years into a marriage where our faith has been tested this way. And I can say this wholeheartedly, God has always come through for the Lejeunes. And He'll always come through for you. How about love? Love is a deep understanding and appreciation for the riches of Christ that he has invested in me. Every penny that I've ever had in my hand came from God. And I can see that he loves me and he provides for me and that causes me to love him back. How about patience there? Patience is trusting God to meet my needs and remove my unnecessary wants. But pastor, I really want that. And and I can't help that I want that. Be patient, take that to the Lord in prayer, and ask Him if it's a need that shouldn't be there to be taken away. And if it shouldn't be there, He'll remove it, and He'll give you the patience in the process. And then you see the word meekness. Meekness is God's power under God's control manifested through us. His power put into us, He controls that power, and then it's manifested in our lives. Meekness. So we are to be concerned with these things. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love. Patience, meekness, in lieu of being concerned about money. May tonight we give our heart over to that. May tonight we seriously evaluate that question, where are my affections? 
Where's your affection at tonight? Is it on the things of this world? Or is it on God? Is it on the comfort that money buys? Or is it on knowing God deeper? The answer to that question can be based on the pattern of your life over the next seven days. Study and look at it. Is your life set up to worship money? Or is your life set up to worship God? Your mouth can say one thing. But your actions speak the truth. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight. Where are my affections? Where are your affections? Are you loving money? Are you loving what money can buy? Or do you love God? Matthew 6.24 is clear. You can't love both. And I think the great sin of the church in, in this time we live in, the great sin of the church is that we're guilty of trying to love both. And it is very clear in Scripture You either love one or you hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve God and mammon. Lord, tonight help us to evaluate and be honest with ourselves. And ask ask ourselves this question. Has Satan ensnarled me by getting me to focus on worldly affections instead of having my affection on things above? Move in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. The altar's open. I'd encourage you tonight and come and talk.